For example, a Cambridge graduate student, now a professor at Stanford University, Lynn Meskel, took issue with Gimbudas' assertion that the Venus figurines all meant the same thing, goddess. In the first place, a great number of different peoples inhabited her old Europe, and probably their figurines differed in meaning, particularly over the millennia. Gimbutas downplayed or ignored the many other figurines from the Neolithic, male, sexless, and animal. In looking at rock art figures, she assumed that virtually everything that was not obviously phallic was a goddess symbol, including parallel lines, lozenges, zigzags, spirals, double axes, butterflies, pigs, and pillars, unquote. Additionally, many archaeological sites in the region, Meskel pointed out, were indeed fortified. Various Balkan cemeteries showed signs of social hierarchies, not the egalitarianism Kimbudas asserted, and in at least one site called Triandilu, we there were human sacrifices. Beyond that, Gimbutas wrote that the female figurines were found in practically every kind of situation, near hearths, inside, outside, even in refuse piles, which Mescal argued could more easily mean that they were toys. Archaeologists, Meskel wrote, would do more for the cause of feminism if they were to divorce their efforts from methodological shortcomings, reverse sexism, conflated data, and pure fantasy. Unquote. The next blow came when Ian Hodder, another Cambridge archaeologist now at Stanford University, led a large, modern, multidisciplinary dig at Katalhoyuk beginning in the early 1990s. Mallard was able to excavate only a handful of the hundreds of residence, residential rooms, and it was shown from other rooms, murals, other figurines and burials that this city ha appeared to be quite egalitarian. As to gender status, much of the decorations pertain to bulls and hunting. Not only that, but Katalhoyuk did not even qualify as an early city since it contained only residences but no monumental public buildings that would suggest 
an urban-style administrative component of its society. How did Gimbutus and Mellert get it so wrong? Unstated unconscious assumptions were at the base of it. Both were operating on the Bachofen type assumption of a lineal progression through universal stages of culture that led from matriarchy to patriarchy. Associated with these stages was the notion that in deep time, people recognized kin ties through the mother's line, while later probably having something to do with the time that plants and animals came to be domesticated, humans began aligning themselves by paternal ties. And that soon led to a patriarchic social order. The problem with all this is that there is not yet any archaeological or ethnographic evidence anywhere of what could be called an actual matriarchy. Whether one aligns oneself with maternal or Paternal ties does not bring about any particular political order. Indeed, to imagine that it does is simply to confuse matrilineality with matriarchy and patrilineality with patriarchy. Even the Kurgan hypothesis has taken a beating recently. Another hypothesis has been around for a while, suggesting that the Indo-European languages probably originated in Anatolia well before 5,000 years ago. Linguists and geneticists are coming to the conclusion that the Anatolia hypothesis is correct, at least in part. Anatolian farming began to spread to Greece and elsewhere in the region starting about 8,500 years ago, a date that accords better with linguistic dating of the spread of the original Indo-European language. And there is evidence that about 6,500 years ago, the region experienced a rapid divergence of Indo-European languages that gave rise to the Romance, Celtic, and Balto-Slavic languages. This is about the same time when Kurgans took up residence in the Russian steppe north of the Black Sea. Given the fairly imprecise nature of linguistic dating, 
It is possible that the Kurgan stirred up matters in Eastern Europe sufficiently to bring about a sudden linguistic divergence. All this, of course, is not to cast aspersions on the goddess myth or religion, which many find to be a happy counterbalance to the rather remote male god of the so-called world religions. Of course, there were ancient societies that had very powerful male deities. For example, the Egyptians' Nut or Night existed before the world carried the earth, which she wove into being between her thighs and gave birth to the sun. Such entities are excellent fodder for those so inclined. But late Pleistocene and Neolithic archaeology can no longer be called on for support. In figure 12-1 is an artistic rendering of the prototypical Mother Goddess, as found at Katalhoyuk. One of the most significant challenges, in fact, to Gimbutas' tendency to see the same meaning in images and figurines that were created over a period of some 40,000 years is that it doesn't take into account the huge sea change in all manner of social futures of life <clears throat> that accompany the switch in many parts of the world from foraging to cultivating to the out-and-out -out domestication of plants and animals. <clears throat> Ultimately, the rise of agriculture would lead to such things as state-level societies civilizations, not to mention the internet, but its more proximate effects on both sexes and all genders were profound. Before we look at some of those effects, it is time to consider the process of domestication of plants, which we now believe was chiefly women's work and the domestication of animals, probably men's work, at least in the case of the larger animals, which took place all around the world. It happened at different times, to be sure, but within an astonishingly short time worldwide, considering all the preceding millennia, when every society of anatomically modern humans was out there hunting and gathering. 